Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief Washington Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. Rick, I think I told you last week on this podcast that I believed that this uh, Senate impeachment trial uh, would be would be dramatic, would be emotionally uh, compelling and searing. I don't know the exact words that I used, but I but I I had been there covering the two previous impeachment trials, uh, Bill Clinton in 1999, and of course Donald Trump last year, uh, and and both for all the drama and all the history of it all were actually. You know, for 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 the most part, uh, far from uh, uh, compelling television, um, constitutional arguments as they may be, uh, compelling in their own right. But um, but but this was different, uh, and I think that you know that there were many aspects of this uh, that that made this one of the um, the, the most memorable uh, days that I think that I, I've ever witnessed in the uh, in the Senate. Uh, one of which obviously was the video that the the thirteen minute video that the House managers put together. We all lived through uh, January sixth. We all watched the events unfold in real time. We've talked about them much in the days since. But that video um, went through and and in its you know by by establishing the timeline and the things that were happening simultaneously. Um, was was particularly powerful, and the fact that it played on the floor of the United States Senate, uh, the very place where the rioters had been and had ransacked, the fact that the video included uh, the the shots of those rioters rifling through the desks of the senators, the very desks that they were there sitting at watching the video. Um, you know, this is this is real power and uh, damning in its portrayal of the president's actions on that day and his inactions on that day once the riot uh, was underway. And then to see it um, followed up with one of the most inept performances that we've ever seen on the floor of the Senate, certainly uh, uh, the, the most inept in a high-profile a situation that I've ever seen, uh, Bruce Castor's uh, bizarre and rambling uh, opening arguments for the defense. Uh, it was uh, it added up to be uh, a day that I will I will not soon forget, um, and it actually changed the vote. Uh, and by the way, I mean I don't only changed one vote, and you need to change a hell of a lot more than one vote to uh, to change the outcome of this trial. But it's not often that we see arguments on the Senate floor actually change anybody's mind. <laughs> good point. <laughs> it's a good point. I, I was surprised by how emotionally affected I was uh, watching it. And, and I can only imagine for United States senators who lived through it what the experience was like and to be in the chamber uh, as that video played, as, as Congressman Jamie Raskin talked about his own uh, personal uh, uh, journey and, and trials and tribulations around this um, in, in a very impactful way, and we're gonna we're gonna play that in a bit. But I, you know, John, I uh, it's only been you know thirty five days or so since since these atrocities were committed, uh, and, and it strikes me that you know we have a short attention span in this world. And going back through that and, and putting together. Um, splicing together the president's words, the president's tweets, juxtaposed with the awful images at the Capitol, all put together in, in a timeline, was extraordinarily effective in just establishing 
uh, how terrible that day was uh, and, and how these political words did did lead to um, some of the worst atrocities we've ever seen in in the Capitol, uh, and and I think it was it was a much just a much more emotional day than than I anticipated. Um, the, the day one was supposed to, to focus on more narrow constitutional questions, uh, but they went right for the heart, and this was uh, you know a mismatch legally, I think a mismatch emotionally, uh, and and even if it doesn't get. 67 votes. Uh, it, it, it establishes, I think, some important points early on in this trial. And what is this about? Is this what, what is the measure of, of success for, for the House managers? Why are they doing this? Are they doing it because they think that they have a realistic shot at convicting Donald Trump? I, I, I don't believe that's the case. I mean, I you know, um, I, I, there was certainly a sense in the immediate aftermath of January 6th that I was hearing from Republicans uh, that impeachment and conviction was a real possibility. But I mean, now we, we've we've seen not once but twice uh, the, you know, 44 of those Republican senators vote to stop the trial uh, before it was even started. Uh, it's hard to imagine that they somehow turn around and say, aha, just kidding. Uh, he's he's guilty after after trying to stop the trial not once, uh, but twice. But I, I think this comes down to the the, the video uh, bringing up a a tweet which before uh, yesterday Chris Donovan was actually our colleague was reminding us of uh, our, our ABC colleague Chris Donovan the tweet that the president uh, then president now former president sent out on January sixth at six oh one p.m. Uh, after the Capitol had been, for the most part, cleared of all the rioters, but was still um, a mess and Congress had not returned. And he uh, tweeted, uh, you know, basically a justification for what had been done, saying this is what happens effectively, you know, when, when an election is stolen. But that, but that tweet ended with the words, remember this day forever. And these House impeachment managers want to make sure that we remember this day forever and we remember just what Donald Trump did to help bring it about. And also uh, to remember, I think, a subtext here is the complicity of, of many of the Republicans uh, in Congress, including a handful in, at least a handful, in that chamber, uh, in that Senate chamber, uh, complicity in the destructive politics that led that mob to invade the Capitol. Um, but Rick, beyond the, the video and the, uh, and, and the constitutional argument that was made uh, yesterday, and as you know, we've discussed, I, I think there actually is a legitimate constitutional debate whether or not uh, you can have a, uh, it's appropriate to have a trial of, of an ex-president. I think, that's, I think that's actually a legitimate argument to have. But uh, Jamie Raskin, um, in, in his closing yesterday, on day one of the impeachment trial. Jamie Raskin, whose son died by suicide exactly a week before the insurrection, uh, closed out describing his experience on that day and in, in, in some of the most powerful and emotionally raw uh, words that, that, that I have, I've ever heard uh, on, on the Senate floor, I've ever heard in Congress, uh, describing what was going on with him and with his family one week 
after the death of his son. Uh, let's play a little uh, segment of what Jamie Raskin said. Our new chaplain got up and said a prayer for us, and we were told to put our gas masks on. And then there was a sound I will never forget, the sound of pounding on the door like a battering ram, the most haunting sound I ever heard, and I will never forget it. My chief of staff, Julie Tagan, was with Tabitha and Hank locked and barricaded in that office, the kids hiding under the desk, placing what they thought were their final texts and whispered phone calls to say their goodbyes. They thought they were going to die. My son-in-law had never even been to the Capitol before. And when they were finally rescued over an hour later by Capitol officers and we were together, I hugged them and I apologized and I told my daughter Tabitha, who's 24 and a brilliant algebra teacher in Teach for America. Now, I told her how sorry I was, and I promised her that it would not be like this again the next time she came back to the Capitol with me. And you know what she said? She said, Dad, I don't want to come back to the Capitol again. <laughs> Of all the terrible, brutal things I saw and I heard on that day. And since then, that one hit me the hardest. Now, Rick, you can imagine the dilemma facing the former president's defense legal team uh, when they had to immediately follow that. Um, and we... Uh, understand that there had been a, a change in strategy uh, that, that had been um, uh, decided on earlier in the day uh, that um, that Bruce Castor would be the one uh, that would uh, that would be the lead for the president's defense would would speak first, and um, I, I don't even know how to characterize <laughs> the uh, the presentation, but um, but Trevor has gone through and he's kind of put together a, a few different clips. Uh, so why don't we just play a little bit of it and we'll see if you, get, if you get the sense. I'll be quite frank with you. We changed what we were going to do on account that we thought that the House manager's presentation was well done. I saw a headline, Representative so-and-so seeks to walk back comments about, I forget what it was. Nebraska, you're going to hear, is quite a judicial thinking place. Uh, Senator Dirksen recorded a series of lectures that my parents had on a record. And we still know what records are, right? On the thing you put the needle down on and you play it. Well, yeah, we know what records are. Anyway, the, the, it went on for 45 minutes like this, and I was getting messages uh, from a whole range of people um, uh, Republicans, <laughs> Democrats, uh, people close to Donald Trump, people uh, not close at all to Donald Trump, who were like, what the heck is going on? What is the point? But I, uh, I was told that um, uh, down in Mar-a-Lago uh, that, that there was a sense that uh, even before this that, that, that Trump might not like entirely what was going on. So there was an effort to make sure he had some meetings going on that he wouldn't be 
uh, this wouldn't have his undivided attention, but of course it's impossible for him not to have uh, seen what was going on. Often when he has meetings, he's got, you know, in in, in the office, he's got the television on. Uh, So, um, you know, he he clearly watched some of this, and I'm told that he was obviously unhappy uh, with what he saw from his legal team. But I want to play again the one line that was most infuriating uh, to the former president. I'll be quite frank with you. We changed what we were going to do on account that we thought that the House manager's presentation was well done. Yeah. Uh, so you can imagine, uh, you know, Donald Trump's reaction to hearing uh, his lawyer on the floor of the Senate saying uh, that a presentation that accused uh, the president of high crimes and misdemeanors and of, uh, of an insurrection uh, was well done. They missed, at best you could say they missed the moment wildly because the, 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 the impeachment managers went for the emotional heart of the case uh, and, and, and really were in that moment throughout. Uh, you know, I agree. I got I got a bunch of texts as well from people saying, "Where is this going? What are we? What, what's the thinking here? Is there some grand, brilliant legal strategy here?" It turned out there really wasn't one, uh, and the messaging beyond being rambling was often contradictory. You heard about how um, the, the the impeachment was went too fast without due process, but also that it was too slow because now he was he was out of office. Um, you also heard his lawyers concede that he lost the election to Joe Biden, which is not something the president still has conceded. And to me, John, I think what was so interesting is one of the arguments that his that the Trump's attorneys are, are are using here is that the system worked. That you know, in the words of of his attorneys, a hundred percent of the time, Bruce Castro told us, a hundred percent of the time, when the, the voters get rid of an incumbent president, the, a new president takes over. Well, the point is, we came really close to that not happening here. That's what the trial is is about at its core. And I, I I think if you you know if you're a senator listening to this with with an open mind, I, I don't know how you come away from this feeling better about the president's case. So, so, Rick, there's some overheated reporting that uh, Mitch McConnell spoke to Republicans last night, and he said, you know, vote your conscience, and I still haven't made up my mind, and, uh, you know, just because you voted that it's not constitutional to have the trial doesn't mean you can't vote to convict, and, and, and this has been used to suggest that somehow, you know, McConnell and others might come around and, and still uh, vote to convict. I mean, I think that's all, frankly, nonsense. Uh, there, there, there's, there's roughly 0% chance uh, that you'll have 17 Republicans uh, voting to, to convict. But I think that what this presentation did is it brought to the fore the biggest question going into this trial, which is for those Republicans who are not going to vote to convict, what are they going to do? Uh, are they going to do anything to hold Donald Trump accountable uh, for his actions uh, on and before January 6th? And this raises the very real question of whether or not once uh, this vote is, once this trial is over, once there is a vote that will fall short uh, of the uh, of the two thirds majority to convict, will Republicans uh, look for an opportunity uh, to vote to censure Donald Trump and perhaps take a separate vote uh, to try to prevent him uh, from ever being able to run for office again? I'm told that the ground is shifting on that question. Uh, the Republicans have not been lining up uh, in favor of censure at all, to say the least. Tim Kaine. <clears throat> had his censure uh, resolution um, and got a very, very hard time finding any Republican support for it. Uh, but, you know, I, I think that one of the big questions going forward is, does that change? And, and if Republicans will not support conviction, will they support censure? 
And if they won't support censure, what will they support to hold Donald Trump accountable? Uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk to one of the jurors uh, who was there for the presentation, and we'll ultimately vote on these questions. Welcome back to Powerhouse Politics. Uh, we are joined now by Senator Jeff Merkley of the uh, great state of Oregon. Thank you for joining us, sir. You're welcome. Good to be with you. Uh, and as we learned from the president's uh, attorney, I guess all, all senators say their states are great. Um, which, uh, <laughs> we did learn which, that. Which I guess, that, I guess you know, now that I think, that's probably true. Well, in my case, it's not only great. Oregon's not just great. It, it is the best state. <laughs> I, I, do, I do love Oregon. But, uh, Senator, I, I, I have to just ask you what you, what you thought and what was going through your head and what, what you noticed uh, of, of your colleagues as you watched that incredibly powerful uh, presentation yesterday from the House managers? Well, the chronological video uh, just conveyed everything that was happening while we were previously trapped in the chamber on January 6th and ultimately confronted uh, with the removal, being removed from the chamber, the chamber being, being stormed. Uh, I think few of us ever thought that this could happen in the United States of America. The biggest fear that the founders had about the success of the Constitution was whether you would have a president manipulate the system, an imperial presidency, if you will, an authoritarian president who would seek to cling to power. But we never thought after a couple hundred years of practicing the peaceful transfer of power, we would have a president who was so inclined and determined to do so and would culminate in the storming of the Capitol. And yet that's what we, we witnessed from inside before and we witnessed watching it uh, uh, through the lens of so many cameras yesterday. And that just is um, resonating in our hearts. It's like, wow, how did, how did it come to this? And how do we hold this president accountable, that is Trump, and send a message to future presidents who might be similarly inclined? So. On the, this question of, I mean, the Republicans obviously were only swayed so much by what they saw. I mean, we saw Senator Cassidy actually change his mind as, as a result of, of the presentations, but, but that was it. Um, where do you stand on this idea uh, of if, the, if you don't get the two-thirds to convict of, of having a separate vote to censure Donald Trump? It seems extremely difficult if you don't get uh, two-thirds to convict, can you get 60 to close debate on a censure motion? Uh, it, it seems unlikely unless you have, for some reason, we, we do have 60-plus votes but not 67 uh, on a conviction. Then, then it's certainly within the realm of possibility. But I keep hearing that senators who feel that we've gone through the whole impeachment process really don't want to turn around and go through it all again on a censure. That is the, the Republican uh, side just feeling like this is a, a painful, difficult thing for them to go through, as it is as it is for all of us. But I think I think my Republican colleagues are torn between their base and the loyalty of their base to Trump, and the, their, their sense that they are standing at a moment in history when they should be uh, fighting for principles, but they're not doing so, and uh, they're troubled by that. And they and and maybe if. Um, Censorship is a, a way to resolve that uh, tension that they're feeling. That might be possible, but it comes down to are there 10 Republicans willing to close debate so that we could 
could actually get to a simple majority vote on censure. Senator, I want to ask you about the question of, of witnesses. It's an open question as to whether they'll be called here, but I, I was intrigued. You were a big proponent of witnesses in the last impeachment trial from a year ago. In fact, you even filed a bill that would require witness testimony in future impeachment trials going forward. Uh, you called the last, the last trial a sham because it didn't include witnesses. Do you feel the same way now? Is it, uh, will there be witnesses, and do you think that's critical to establishing the, the grounds of, a, of an appropriate impeachment trial? I don't think that any senator should block witnesses desired by the prosecution or by the defense. In other words, both sides, it's their responsibility to present their very best case. What we saw yesterday was the, the prosecution said, we're going to present witnesses in the forms of what many people taped. So it was a videotaped uh, uh, testimonies, if you will, first-hand witnesses. Uh, but not calling them to a stand. But if they want to call someone to a stand, the Republicans shouldn't block it. And if, if the defense wants to call witnesses to the stand, uh, Democrats or the majority shouldn't block it. We, it's, it's an essential part of a fair process. So I stand by that same principle. But to be clear, that, isn't, that doesn't necessarily mean there will be witnesses. I mean, couldn't, couldn't the Senate decide to call witnesses regardless? I mean, and, and I, I just it seems to me like there are people you might want to hear from, maybe even Vice President Pence, uh, someone who, who was there at the moment. Is that, is that in the realm, or is, are you going to leave it to the, either side to make their case? Well, this is where we're all kind of in this uh, strange land of, of being jurors, and we're told it's not our, our choice of, of how it's presented. But sometimes the vote of the body is needed to allow certain things to happen, uh, such as the presentation of witnesses. Well, we should absolutely allow it. Uh, there should be absolutely no, no question that if either the prosecution or the defense want witnesses, they get it. As to whether we should, against the advice of the prosecution and defense, uh, call or vote to call witnesses, seems like a violation of uh, fair representation for the two sides of the, of the case if we force their hand. But, do, but do, you, do you expect the House managers will ultimately not decide they need witnesses? Uh, I, have, I have not heard from them. They have not shared that, that detail on their, their strategy, and it might adjust depending on what the defense does. And, and, and how uh, important is it for this to get done quickly? I mean, given the urgency of, of uh, Joe Biden's... Uh, you know, from the White House perspective, the urgency that, that Joe Biden feels uh, about getting his agenda, uh, obviously the COVID relief bill, but his nominations, uh, his other priorities uh, moving through the Senate. How important is it to get this thing done quickly? Well, certainly the, the, the first order is uh, to make sure it's done fairly. Uh, I haven't heard anyone say that they expect that this will take beyond Monday or Tuesday at the latest and maybe wrapped up by Saturday or Sunday. Uh, so we're not too focused on the, on the time because whether it's, it's Saturday or, or Tuesday, uh, it's, it, needs, it just needs to be a fair process. I'm, I'm glad that the rules were laid out and supported in a strongly bipartisan manner. Uh, but uh, to your broader point, should the defense decide to do a stalling tactic and you know, call 100 witnesses to try to tie us up for weeks and weeks, that would be unfortunate, but I don't think it's something that uh, President Trump would, would want. I don't think he wants this display to continue. The longer it, longer it goes, the more possibility that uh, Republicans decide that they're going to vote, vote their conscience rather than their base. Yes, yeah, certainly, uh, certainly your Republican colleagues don't want this to go on very long. Um, and, and, you know, right now, uh, 
the Trump defense has the votes they need, so why antagonize, uh, which would right. certainly happen. Uh, Senator Merkley, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. We hope we can get you back on the Powers Politics podcast soon uh, to, to, to talk, about, uh, talk about all the other issues that you're working on. But thank you for joining us. I, I look forward to it. You're welcome. Take care now. All right, and that is all the time we have for Powerhouse Politics. Thank you to our uh, guru and executive chief producer, uh, Mr. Trevor Hastings. Uh, and uh, Rick Klein, I think, has already moved on to cover uh, the impeachment trial. And we will be back with you next week.